We have had the most extraordinary year of drought and cold ever known in the history of America. The summer has been as cold as a moderate winter. In every state north of this, there has been frost in every month of the year. In this state we had none in June and July, but those of August killed much corn over the mountains. Every species of bread grain taken together will not be sufficient for the subsistence of the inhabitants, and the exportation of flour already begun by the indebted and the improvident, to whatsoever degree it may be carried, will be exactly so much taken from the mouths of our own citizens. My anxieties on this subject are the greater, because I remember the deaths which the drought of 1755 in Virginia produced from the want of food. Thomas Jefferson, 1816. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, an author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 6, Jefferson in Winter On the evening of March 4, 1809, following the inauguration of James Madison as the fourth president of the United States, a group of politicians, well-wishers and friends followed the Madisons from the Capitol, where the inauguration was held, to the President's House, what we now call the White House. There was a reception there to welcome the new President, and also to say goodbye to the old one, Thomas Jefferson, who just completed his eight-year term. Margaret Bayard Smith, a savvy Washington lady and friend of both Presidents, wrote a letter to her sister, describing the day and the reception afterward. She said that Madison seemed pale and even trembling when he started his inaugural address, and still seemed a little on edge at the reception afterwards. By contrast, Jefferson was calm, collected, and charming. He danced with the ladies and cracked jokes. When someone noted how good he looked compared to the pale and worried-looking Madison, he's reported to have said, I have got this burden off my shoulders while he has now got it on his. Jefferson certainly wasn't the first president to feel like a load of bricks was suddenly off his shoulders once his successor took office. Regardless of the political issues in our current election, just ask Barack Obama in a couple of weeks how he'll feel when he turns over the keys of the White House to, well, you know who. In Jefferson's case, though, his celebration was a little premature. There's no doubt that the process of serving as president from 1801 to 1809 was a stressful one. During his term of office, Jefferson had to deal with Napoleon, 
Barbary pirates, his archenemy Alexander Hamilton, and Hamilton's murderer, Jefferson's other archenemy Aaron Burr, and various other crises. But you can make a case that the next decade of Jefferson's life, the second decade, was the darkest time of all. He left Washington almost completely broke. His debts were mounting. He had an alcoholic son-in-law he didn't get along with, and an extended family of slaves, some of them his children, who were financially dependent on him. His estate, Monticello, was deteriorating. And while he didn't know it, a series of disasters, some environmental, some man-made, were about to make life in his retirement a lot more difficult. This is the story of Thomas Jefferson during the second decade of the 19th century. Jefferson and his retirement in what you might call the winter of his life. Most stories of Jefferson in his post-presidency years focus on three things. His famous correspondence with John Adams, his founding of the University of Virginia, and the wacky coincidence of his death with the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, and on the same day as the death of John Adams, July 4, 1826. In contrast to how the story is usually told, I'm not going to focus on any of those things. Even without those greatest hits of his winter years, the story of Jefferson in the second decade is every bit as fascinating and contradictory as the story of any other part of his life. A slave owner who coined the basic language of freedom, a patriot who kept his own children in bondage for decades, Jefferson is a great enigma at the very heart of American history. This is the story of what happened to him in that momentous decade. Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, was pretty eager to get home. He'd started sending his belongings home to Monticello in Albemarle County, Virginia, as early as 1807. Once he was finally out of office, he couldn't wait to leave. On March 12, 1809, he departed from Washington on horseback, with two of his slaves accompanying him. It was snowing. The 100-mile trip to Monticello took four days. He must have been pretty stoked to get back to his books, his wine, and his mistress, Sally Hemings, who quite wisely never appeared in Washington during his term of office. We're going to have to get into the subject of Sally Hemings, and we will. It's a very complex subject. But first, let's catch up with Jefferson in his first month's home. It seems to have been a pretty happy time for him. His friend, Margaret Bayard Smith, visited him at Monticello in early August 1809. He gave her a tour of his library and the closet where he kept the seeds for his garden. Jefferson loved gardening. One of his slaves, Isaac, said that he was always singing or humming. Jefferson loved horseback riding and typically rode several hours every day, summer or winter. At the beginning of the second decade, he was 66 years old and generally in pretty good health, though his wrist, which he broke years earlier while serving in Paris, and possibly in an incident involving his English girlfriend, Maria Causeway, his wrist always gave him a twinge now and again. As I describe Jefferson's life at Monticello in the 18-teens, we have to get into the subject of his family. This is an extremely complicated subject. I literally need a scorecard to keep him straight. I mean that, a scorecard, I have one. So let's get started, and as I talk about the various family members, it'll illuminate what life was like at Monticello for the Jefferson family. Besides Jefferson himself, the most important person at Monticello by far was his daughter, 
Martha Jefferson Randolph. She was 36 in 1809, and when Jefferson moved back to Monticello in that year, Martha, who was totally devoted to her father, went with him. You might think just from me saying that, that Martha Randolph was a spinster. She wasn't. She was married, and at the beginning of the second decade, had eight children. During the course of the next ten years, she had three more. This poor woman was exhausted. In addition, because Jefferson was a widow, sorry, widower, Martha served as his acting first lady during the time he was president, and in fact she lived at the White House. By 1809, Jefferson had no living children other than Martha. Jefferson's wife, Martha Wales, squeezed out six puppies during their marriage, of which three died in infancy. Then there was Polly, born in 1778, and another daughter, Lucy, whose birth was basically the cause of Martha Jefferson's death. She died in 1782 from complications from childbirth. When Jefferson was appointed U.S. Minister to France, he took his oldest daughter, Martha, the future Martha Jefferson Randolph, with him. But he left Polly and Lucy at home in the care of aunts and slaves. Lucy died in 1785, aged three, while her father was in Paris. Jesus, too bad the gravediggers at Monticello weren't eligible for overtime. They were slaves, of course. Anyway, after Lucy's death, Jefferson decided to send for his youngest living daughter, Polly, to join him in Paris. Now remember that detail. That's important. Well, I'm going to come back to it. Fast forward back to Monticello in 1809. Polly was dead by this time. She herself died in childbirth at Monticello in 1804. Martha Randolph, the eldest daughter and the last surviving one, was undoubtedly the queen of Monticello. But she had a lot of subjects to look after. One was her husband, Thomas Randolph. There were actually two Thomas Randolphs in this story, so this one I'm going to refer to as Thomas Mann Randolph or Mann Randolph. Sometime politician, a drunk, child abuser, spendthrift, there's not really much to redeem Jefferson's son-in-law, who reportedly detested Jefferson. The daughter of Martha and Thomas Mann Randolph, Ellen, wrote of her grandfather that, when Jefferson and Mann Randolph were around each other, the former president pretended ignorance, and her quote, his unalterable calm, his affectionate politeness, made it entirely impossible to begin an unpleasant discussion. The other Thomas Randolph was Thomas Mann Randolph's son, Thomas Jefferson's grandson. He was aged 16 when he and his family came to live at Monticello in 1809. Okay, that takes care of the major members of Thomas Jefferson's white family. As you well know, he had another family too. I told you we'd get into the subject of Sally, so here we go. Just a brief side note, I'm establishing a Patreon account for this podcast and for my writing. Uh, if you join my Patreon to support my stuff, one of the special features that patrons will get access to is a short bonus piece that's specifically about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. So if you want the really salacious details in the background story, join my Patreon. But for our purposes here on the free podcast, this is what you need to know. Sally Hemings was a slave. I'm sure you realize that by now. Her birth name was Sarah Hemings, she was born in 1773, making her about 36 when Jefferson returned to Monticello. She never went to Washington with him for obvious reasons. Anyway, back in the 1780s, 
when Lucy died and Jefferson wrote home from Paris asking for his middle daughter, Polly, to come join him, the family decided that she could take her favorite servant, meaning slave, with her to Paris. Originally, Polly's nurse, an older woman, was supposed to accompany her, but she got pregnant, so Sally, who was then about 14, was chosen to go in her place. Sally Hemings was basically Polly's nanny. That's how she got to Paris, arriving in 1787, and at some point, certainly no later than 1788, she became Thomas Jefferson's lover. More than lover, concubine was what her own son called her years later. Sally returned home with Jefferson, pregnant, to the United States in 1789. That child died shortly after birth, but 20 years later, when Jefferson returned to Monticello from Washington, Sally had four living children by him. Beverly Hemings, that's a boy, not a girl, uh, he was 11. Harriet Hemings was eight years old, Madison four years old, and Eston Hemings a baby of one. Note those ages. Thomas Jefferson, President of the United States, fathered three children by his slave mistress during his term of office. It's not like this was a secret. Well, it was sort of a secret. The existence of Sally Hemings was exposed in 1802 in political newspapers, so at least some people had heard the rumors. Jefferson didn't publicly acknowledge his mixed-race kids. You just couldn't do that at the time. But no one living around Monticello could possibly have had any illusions about what was going on, especially because it was said by many people that these comparatively light-skinned children strongly resembled their father. Oh, one more thing about Sally, a very important thing as it turns out. Get your scorecard ready. Sally Hemings was not only Thomas Jefferson's mistress and concubine, but she was also his sister-in-law. Her half-sister was none other than Martha Wales, the late wife of Thomas Jefferson. You see, John Wales, the father of Thomas Jefferson's wife, Martha, who also had a slave mistress, a woman named Betty Hemings, he also had children by her. One of those children was Sally Hemings. So, like father, like son-in-law, John Wales had two families, one white, one slave. So did Thomas Jefferson. When Jefferson married Martha Wales, the Hemings family was given to him by John Wales as her dowry. Probably for this reason, Sally Hemings and the other members of the family were never field slaves. They worked in the households of their masters. Many of them learned trades like spinning, weaving, uh, shoemaking, that sort of thing. Dear God, what a complicated family. So you can see that Monticello during the second decade was something of a pressure cooker. There's one adult child, that being Martha, a bunch of grandchildren, the oldest teenager. There are also Jefferson's other young children by Sally and his son-in-law, Man Randolph, who hates him. And that's not counting all the other slaves hanging around and living in the slave quarters out back who work at Monticello's various industries, from farming to making bricks and nails. Floating above this, all of this, in sort of a super-terrestrial twilight, I borrow that phrase from Edith Wharton, living in a nice, well-appointed parlor with his books, his violins, his telescope, and his wine, is Thomas Jefferson himself who never seemed to pay much attention to all the various intrapersonal conflicts happening all around him. He never thought of Monticello as anything other than a very serene and peaceful place. But there's an irony here. The Jeffersons, especially with all their tangled relationships, could be thought of, at least at that time, as something like America's royal family. 
They live in this beautiful Greek revival mansion, two mansions, in fact. I'll get to that. They're, they live in the richest part of Virginia, yet this was an illusion. Jefferson was in pretty desperate financial circumstances in 1809, and it only got worse as the second decade wore on. If they'd had credit cards in the early 19th century, Thomas Jefferson would have needed a consumer credit counselor. All his life, but especially in the White House, Jefferson spent money on books, wine, furniture, clothes, musical instruments, wine, scientific gadgets, wine. Did I mention wine? There was no wine industry in America, so everything he drank had to be imported from France. Very expensive. He also spent a lot of money on construction materials. Architectural design was one of Jefferson's hobbies. He designed Monticello himself. He was constantly remodeling. While he was president, he also began working on a second estate, on a plot of land that he inherited from his father-in-law, John Wales. He called this second estate Poplar Forest. In 1806, midway through his second term, Jefferson sketched out a nice little octagonal-shaped mansion, and he got the ball rolling on construction. It was finished just in time for his retirement, and it cost a bundle. All of this added up. When he left the White House, Jefferson borrowed about $8,000 to pay off all the bills he racked up while he was president. $8,000 in 1810 was the equivalent of over $122,000 today. Even though they were wealthy and lived well with their mansions and slaves, Virginia aristocrats were almost always habitually in debt. That's because they often needed to rely on credit to get their agricultural products, tobacco principally, to market. The shipping companies that controlled the Atlantic cargo trade and the buyers of Virginia's products were mostly British. Consequently, a lot of these Virginia planters, including the Jeffersons, were heavily in hock to various British banks and shipping firms. Some of Jefferson's debts weren't even his own. Even after he left the White House, Jefferson was still trying to pay off a share of his father's $4,000 debts to various British firms. Jefferson's dad had been dead since 1757. During the second decade, Jefferson's sole source of income was farm produce from Monticello. That was it. There was no federal pension for ex-presidents, not until the 20th century. There was no lecture circuit where he could pull down some bank from giving speeches at rubber chicken dinners. He couldn't earn an advance by writing his memoirs like ex-presidents do today. He was in the tobacco business. And business was not very good, for reasons I'll explain in a moment. In 1810, not only was being an ex-president not a means to financial security like it is today, but it actually cost money. If you were an ex-president, you were expected to open your home to visitors and well-wishers, many of them perfect strangers who would come seek you out. Yep, you heard that right. In the 18-teens, you, as a private citizen, provided you could get there, you could mosey on down to Monticello, show up on Jefferson's doorstep, and say, Hi, I'm here. What's for dinner? Granted, not that many total strangers, at least not the hoi polloi, took him up on this. But the Jeffersons had a lot of extended relatives, and you can bet they did. This is part of why Jefferson built Poplar Forest, as a retreat to get away from all these visitors and well-wishers. Entertaining guests was expensive. These people had to be fed. He had to have bedrooms for them and hay for their horses to eat when they packed up and left, if they left. There's even a further irony behind all of these financial difficulties. 
Jefferson's ability to sell tobacco abroad to pay his bills was severely hampered by federal government policy of Thomas Jefferson and his handpicked successor, James Madison. One of the simmering issues that Jefferson left to Madison was the increasing tension between the United States and Great Britain. As you've heard me say more than once in this series, there were a lot of problems between the two countries, but freedom of the seas was probably the biggest. The British, then at war with Napoleon's France, constantly needed crewmen to man the ships of their gigantic navy. When they ran out of fresh recruits back home, they turned to impressment, boarding ships, clapping their crews in irons, hauling them away to serve as British sailors. Supposedly, officially, the British recognized that they couldn't do this to American citizens. But a lot of Brits had run away and joined the American Navy and Merchant Fleet, and the British insisted on getting them back. Plus, the Brits defined who counted as an American citizen pretty narrowly, so there was a lot of conflict over this. In 1807, while Jefferson was president, a British ship stopped and boarded an American frigate, the Chesapeake, and hauled away four people, three of them pretty clearly Americans. The country was outraged. Jefferson ultimately responded with an uncommonly terrible policy, the Embargo Act, which cut off American trade from Britain, a sort of an economic retaliation. The problem? Well, who do you think was the U.S.'s major trade partner? If you guess Great Britain, gold star for you. The embargo was eventually repealed, but when conflict between the U.S. and Britain flared up again early in the second decade, basically the U.S. had two and only two options for dealing with it, either embargo Britain again or declare war. If war was declared, it would, of course, mean an embargo too. Madison, now president, didn't want war. But Madison was a much less gifted politician than Jefferson, he eventually got outmaneuvered by a group of congressmen called the War Hawks. They forced through a declaration of war against Great Britain. President Madison signed it at the end of June, 1812. Even before this, as war looked inevitable, Congress had passed a 90-day embargo to trap American ships in port and avoid having them roaming around out there on the high seas when war was declared, ready and waiting to be plundered and raided by the British, whose navy was much larger. All of this meant that, by the summer of 1812, when Jefferson's finances were worse than ever, and when he most needed a bumper crop of tobacco to sell and pay off his debts, suddenly he could barely sell a single leaf of it. Most of his buyers were in Europe. Revenues for all crops collapsed. This was a very dark time at Monticello. But even at this point, things didn't hit rock bottom. The next assault on Jefferson's fortunes was to come from an entirely unexpected source, the environment. The environment, and particularly the climate, was doing funny things during the second decade. A mysterious volcanic eruption occurred in February or March 1809, just the time that Jefferson was heading home, and volcanic fallout in the atmosphere was cooling the planet slightly, causing strange weather effects. There were several harsh winters right in a row in Virginia. The winter of 1810-1811, Jefferson described in a letter to his friend President James Madison as, quote, a wretched winter for the farmer. The next winter, 1811-1812, Madison wrote from Washington was also pretty hard. The Potomac was frozen for a good part of the winter. 
What was worse for Jefferson than a hard winter? Drought. The next year, 1813, was terribly dry in Virginia. On October 6th of that year, Jefferson wrote, quote, The unfortunate loss on my flower of the last year by the blockade and subsequent fall of price is seriously felt and is much aggravated by the calamitous drought of the present year, such as one has never been seen since the year 1755. We were five months from the 14th of April without rain to lay the dust, except the small one in May. This has reduced our crops of both wheat and corn to about a third of an ordinary one, and the latter being insufficient for the subsistence of our families. We shall have to buy, and probably at a high price." The next month, November 1813, Jefferson wrote to William Short, longtime friend, and incidentally one of his creditors. Quote, From the fork of the James River, and the falls of the other rivers upwards and westwardly, we have had the most calamitous year ever seen since 1755. It began with a blockade, so that the fine crops of the last year made in these upper parts, which could not be at market until after Christmas, were shut up by that and lost their sale. After keeping my flour till the approach of the new harvest, I was obliged to sell it, lest it should spoil on my hands, at a price which netted me only 47 cents a bushel for my wheat, of course a total sacrifice. In the year 1755 it never rained from April to November. There was not bread enough to eat, and many died of famine. This year, in these upper regions, we had not a single rain from April 14th to September 20th, say five months, except a slight shower in May. The wheat was killed by the drought as dead as the leaves of the trees now are. The stems fell before the scythe without being cut, and the little grain in the head shattered on the ground. What was the punchline of this letter, incidentally? It was to beg short to let Jefferson have a little longer to pay off his debts. The long story about the drought was an explanation as to why Jefferson didn't have the money to pay up. Short, incidentally, had been Jefferson's private secretary when he served as ambassador to France in the 1780s. Things couldn't possibly get worse, could they? By talking about the finances and about the letters he wrote, Jefferson started his famous correspondence with his old enemy John Adams in January 1812, just before the war started. Talking about this, you definitely get the impression that Jefferson was in charge, the absolute ruler of Monticello, and in a way that's certainly true. He made the big decisions, the broad strokes, and he was responsible for accounts and the checkbook. Jefferson's account books have been published. They're quite interesting. Incidentally, since he didn't mention Sally Hemings directly in letters, much of what historians know about his relationship with her comes from cryptic entries in his account books. For instance, records of the births of her children or expenditures for clothes for her and the rest of her family. I talk about this in the special lecture on my Patreon. But the real overseer of Monticello was undoubtedly Jefferson's daughter, Martha Randolph. When it came to -to day-to-day operations at the plantation, she decided everything. She directed which slaves did which work, the meals that were served, the education of the children and grandchildren, everything. She even handed out clothing to the slaves and to Sally Hemings, her father's mistress. During the War of 1812, Martha's husband, Thomas Mann Randolph, was away at least part of the time he had a military commission. Probably for the best. He seems to have caused short tempers and aggravation whenever he was around, and only Jefferson's super calm nature kept conflict from erupting. Man Randolph was also going broke even faster than Jefferson was. 
During this time, these dark days, Jefferson might have drawn even closer to Sally. We're going to have to deal with the big question sooner or later. The big question being, what really was the nature of their relationship? So for lack of a better opportunity, let's have it out now. I'm going to go into more detail on this in the bonus lecture. That's the one you get if you become a Patreon subscriber. But basically, there's two schools of thought about the whole Jefferson and Sally thing. The first one is an extrapolation from the basic facts that we simply have to face about this thing. Thomas Jefferson, a white Southerner, was a slave owner. Sally Hemings was, under Virginia and United States law, his property. He could sell her anytime he wanted. Conversely, although the process of freeing slaves in Virginia, it's called manumission, that process was deliberately very rigorous. He could also have freed her at any time he wanted to. Rape is one of the terrible legacies of slavery. The American system of slavery was especially bad, especially inhuman, and thus rape was especially prevalent in slavery as it was practiced in the United States. One of the many ways slaveholders controlled the bodies and lives of their slaves was sexually. It wasn't always men controlling women either. There were a lot of homosexual relationships among slave owners and their slaves. It was common for male teenagers, for example, the sons of slave owners, to abuse slaves of both genders. In a way, that's beside the point, And in a way, that is the point. Did Thomas Jefferson rape Sally Hemings? The first major school of thought on this says yes, or perhaps that it doesn't matter. The power differential, the exploitation of African-American slaves by white slave owners, made any sexual relationship between a slave-owning man and a slave woman tantamount to rape in every way that matters. This is, if you think about it, a perfectly reasonable argument. The second school of thought is that it was a consensual relationship. Basically, that Jefferson and Sally Hemings loved each other, or at least that he loved her. It's certainly possible. He might have seen something in her that reminded him strongly of his wife. She probably looked like his wife. Remember, Sally Hemings and Jefferson's wife had the same father. Historians have speculated especially that the shape of Sally's nose was exactly the same meaning that in profile, she was the spitting image of Martha Wales Jefferson. And consider this. Sally had a chance to leave Jefferson. When she first got pregnant with his baby in 1788 or 1789, he made a deal with her, sometimes called the Treaty. They were in France, where slavery was illegal. If she had decided to stay in France when he went back home to be Secretary of State, she and her children that were born to her would be free forever but she chose not to do that. Jefferson's deal with her was that if she returned and lived with him at Monticello, she would be freed upon his death, and her children would be free at age 21. This deal also included the manumission of Sally's brother, James, who was also part of Jefferson's household in Paris. She chose to go back. Not only that, but she chose to stay at Monticello for the rest of her life, and had four more kids with him. She was Thomas Jefferson's lover for 38 years. Jefferson was only married to his wife, Sally's half-sister, for 10 years. He spent almost four times as long, almost the entire second half of his life, with Sally. I think they loved each other. I really do. I think Sally loved him. Does it excuse the fact that Jefferson owned these people as possessions? No. Does it excuse the 
boneheaded pseudo-intellectual defenses of slavery that Jefferson espoused through his lifetime, especially in his later years? No, of course not. It doesn't excuse that. But I think their relationship was an emotional one. Incidentally, in, uh, historian Annette Gordon-Reed in her book, The Hemingses of Monticello, makes an interesting point about this. She argues that automatically assuming that their relationship was essentially rape, in fact, actually diminishes the agency of Sally Hemings as a woman with the power to make her own choices. It doesn't make slavery, or the exploitation, exploitative nature of slavery, when it comes to sexual dominance, it doesn't make that any less wrong. But in Sally Hemings' case, she did have a choice. Bounded within certain limits, certain cruel realities to be sure, but she could, and did, make her own choices. I agree with that argument. Okay, enough about Sally Hemings. In August 1814, at the climax of the war, a British attack force sailed up the Potomac, sacked the city, burned down the Capitol and the White House, and the Library of Congress. I'm going to be doing an episode on this eventually. This wasn't only a political and military defeat for the United States, but it was a personal tragedy for Jefferson, a lifelong lover of books. He championed the Library of Congress as a seat of learning and knowledge in the New Republic. The Brits turned it into a pile of ashes. But out of this tragedy, or perhaps a renewed sense of desperation at his worsening financial condition, Jefferson plucked an opportunity. With the Library of Congress in an ashtray, this left Jefferson's own significant collection of books, more than 6,000 of them, one of the largest libraries left in the United States. After peace came in the winter of 1815, Jefferson started talking to Congress about selling his own collection to form the cornerstone of a restored Library of Congress. This was easier said than done. Congress at first wasn't too keen to take him up on this offer. But hey, it's Thomas Jefferson, man, the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence. What are you going to do? Ultimately, Congress took the deal. In 1815, Jefferson started packing up his books. He got $23,950 for them. That's the equivalent of about $312,000 in today's money. It was about half, less than half, of what they were worth. Where'd the money go? Creditors. William Short got a portion of it. Still, at least this was a life preserver that would keep Jefferson and his household afloat for a while longer. Incredibly, though, Jefferson just couldn't help himself, and he quickly returned to his old habits. The two things he loved to buy were books and wine. Personally, I can sympathize with that. In 1816, according to his account books, Jefferson spent $480 on books, the equivalent of $6,200 in today's money. I love books, but I don't know if I could read $6,200 worth in one year. I don't know. Well, maybe I could. Who knows? Jefferson's days were full. He'd go horseback riding for several hours, often in the morning and evening, much of the rest of the day when he wasn't nosing around the plantation, playing with grandkids, or boyking Sally, he'd be in his study, either reading those expensive books or writing letters. He wrote lots and lots of letters, including the very famous ones to John Adams. Jefferson had a very nifty device of his own invention, basically an early 19th century Xerox machine. He wrote with a pen attached to a spring arm, a kind of pantograph, and that was attached to another pen in a holder on the desk opposite. So, as he wrote a letter, he made a copy in real time, in his own handwriting. Because of this little gadget, historians have a very rich record of Jefferson's correspondence. 
I've seen Jefferson's writing, the stuff he wrote, not copies. I've actually held and touched real-life documents that he wrote with his own hand. I got to read one of his diaries at the Massachusetts Historical Society. I'm a huge Jefferson fanboy, so basically I had to change my shorts afterwards. Jefferson's handwriting is tiny. I mean, I mean, it's microscopic. My eyes hurt to read it. We're talking about a man in his 60s and 70s writing like this. Incidentally, I've read a lot of handwriting from the second decade. Jefferson's is quite readable. Among the better 19th century handwriting, the worst, I mean the absolute worst, is James Monroe's. I pity any historians who have to try to read his stuff. Anyway, I digress. 1815. The war's over. Ports are open. Tobacco and other crops can reach market again. Should be better times at Monticello and Poplar Forest, right? Well, Jefferson couldn't catch a break during the second decade. In April 1815, the very month that he made the deal to sell his books to Congress, on the other side of the world, another huge volcanic eruption, Tambora in what's now Indonesia, accelerated the process of global cooling that had been going on since 1809. No one knew this at the time. The result was another round of harsh winters, cool rainy summers, and various weather anomalies. The famous Year Without Summer, 1816, was felt in Virginia the same as it was other places, and it played havoc with crops. In May 1816, Jefferson wrote to a friend, quote, The great prices given for tobacco have produced great preparations for the present year, which, however, will be baffled by the weather. The spring has been unusually dry and cold. Our average morning cold for the month of May in other years has been 63 degrees of Fahrenheit, in the present month, it's been to this day an average of 53 degrees, and one morning as low as 43. Repeated frosts have killed the early fruits and the crops of tobacco, and wheat will be poor. About the middle of April, they had at Quebec snow a foot deep. End quote. The environment just wouldn't give Jefferson a break. He continued to struggle financially, never quite rising out of the morass of debt. The best he could do was to shine it on with more credit, letters pleading for lengthened deadlines, just another season, things will look better next year. We've all been there. By 1817, Jefferson was deep into the preparations for establishing the University of Virginia. I'm not going to go into that story. We don't have time. Suffice it to say, the university was a labor of love and passion for Jefferson, who adored learning and knowledge above all things. The university was established, incidentally, on land purchased from James Monroe, who was by then president and Jefferson designed the famous Rotunda building. Big shocker, it looks very much like Monticello and Poplar Forest. By now, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, the grandson, you remember we talked about him, he was married to the daughter of one of Jefferson's political friends, Wilson Carey Nicholas, who incidentally was governor of Virginia. Nicholas had this great idea to get rich by buying lands out west. In 1818, he took out two $10,000 loans, and politely asked Jefferson to co-sign on the note. You might wonder why anyone who actually had $20,000 in 1819, the equivalent of over $300,000 today, would take the marker of a guy who was in lifelong hawk way over his head and losing more money every year. But the truth was, Jefferson's financial difficulties weren't well known to the public. And as for his risk, hey, not only was Nicholas family, but he was definitely good for it supposedly one of the richest men in Virginia. Hmm, then why did he need a cosigner on a $20,000 loan? You can see where this is going. 
In the winter of 1819, there was a huge financial downturn, the first real depression in U.S. history. Never mind what caused the Panic of 1819, as it's called, but suffice it to say that banks, they operated a little differently then, they started closing left and right. Prices for everything shot up. So did unemployment. Guess who was one of the many speculators ruined in this collapse? You got it. Wilson Carey Nicholas. In addition to going broke, Nicholas committed an even greater party foul by dying at a very inopportune time. When he croaked in 1820, he was buried at Monticello, incidentally, he left poor Jefferson holding the bag. Jefferson was now responsible for the entire $20,000 loan. There was no way he could pay. His debts now totaled over $100,000. The family went into panic mode. Thomas Jefferson Randolph, the grandson, swooped in to try to salvage what was left of the family's fortunes. He offered to take over the management of Monticello, and in fact all of Jefferson's property, and he started selling it right and left to pay the debts. Poplar Forest, sold. Gone. It's history. Slaves, just about everybody but the Hemings family, sold. To another one of the grandsons. They sold off Edge Hill, the estate of Thomas Mann Randolph, that was Martha's alcoholic husband, as you recall. That made him even more paranoid and angry. He became estranged from his wife, and even more from his father-in-law. Jefferson eventually cut him out of his will. Toward the end, they even started selling off the furniture at Monticello. Those beautiful rooms, once filled with handsome tables and chairs, books, velvet drapes, lots of stuff that Jefferson bought in France or had imported, gone. The paint started peeling. The wooden floors started warping. Monticello was falling into ruin. The winter of Jefferson's life turned out to be a bleak one. As much as I hate to leave you with a sad ending, this is how the second decade ended for Thomas Jefferson and family. He died, as I'm sure you know, on the 4th of July, 1826, in an almost empty room at Monticello. Sally was with him until the very end. Martha Jefferson Randolph honored her father's pledge to free the Hemings' children, and she gave Sally her freedom too, informally. She, Sally, I mean, died in 1835. At the time of her death, she was classified in census records as a white person. Jefferson himself, the slave owner who wrote The Language of Modern Liberty, remains one of the most puzzling and controversial figures in American history. This was his story during the second decade. If you like this podcast, please share it, tell somebody about it. Mention it on your social media, your Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatever's your thing. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Munger. There's an underscore there. And my website, SeanMunger.com. And I now have a Patreon. That's at Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash Sean Munger. All one word. Patrons can access my special bonus video with more on Jefferson and Sally. My historical sources for this episode include The Hemingses of Monticello, An American Family by Annette Gordon-Reed, published by W.W. W. Norton, 2008, and Thomas Jefferson, An Intimate History by Fawn Brody, W.W. W. Norton, 1974, as well as The Published Letters of Thomas Jefferson. Music Credits The main theme of this podcast is titled String Impromptu Number 1 by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com used under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night.